Section 12 of American Civil War Collection, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Suzanne Huron. The Battle of Spring Hill, Tennessee. Read after the stated meeting held on February 2nd, 1907. Section 2. By John K. Schellenberger. And in a paper on this campaign by a captain of the regiment, he relates how the officers of the regiment tried to stop the flying troops and taunt their officers with the bad example they were setting their men, how the regiment opened a rapid, withering fire from the little parapet of cartridges which the officers, breaking open boxes of ammunition, had built in front of the van, and how their fire proved so destructive at that close range that it stopped Cheatham's men, who then fell back and commenced building breastworks. In calling them Cheatham's men, did the captain wish to insinuate that Cheatham's whole corps was charging on the regiment? He uses the words withering, destructive, and at that close range, in a way to raise the inference that the contact was very close. The actual distance was shrapnel shell range. For the battery stopped Claiborne with those missiles before he had crossed the little stream more than a thousand yards away so that instead of a cool regiment of exceptional staying qualities delivering a destructive fire at very close range as pictured by the captain the truth discloses a highly excited not to say badly scared regiment wasting ammunition at too long range to do any damage that this was the truth is proved by the very significant fact not deemed worthy of mention in either accounts quoted that the regiment did not lose a single man killed or wounded not one and it was not protected by breastworks with impressive mystery, the captain describes the regiment as what was left of it after the way it had been cut up in the Atlantic campaign with the same artful vagueness used in the matter of range, seeking to create the inference that the battle losses of the regiment had been very extraordinary. Again, to be specific, the regiment lost in its three years' term of service two officers and thirty-seven men killed or died of wounds, less than one-third the average loss of the six regiments composing Bradley's brigade, and it stands one hundred and ninth among the infantry regiments of its state in the number of the battle losses or excepting six regiments that spent most of their time in garrison duty at the bottom of the list of all three years regiments sent from the state it would appear that the one hundred and third ohio had become pretty well imbued with the spirit characteristic of the headquarters with which it was associated to claim credit in inverse ratio to services rendered when Claiborne changed direction, his left swung in so close to the pike that the two guns and the 36 Illinois were driven away, and Claiborne could have extended his left across the pike without meeting with any further opposition. Lowry and Govan made the change in line of battle while Granbury faced to the right and followed their movement in columns of four. Afterward, Granbury about faced and moved back some distance in column, then fronted in line and advanced to a farm fence paralleling the pike, at a distance variously stated at from eighty to one hundred yards his line there halted and laid down behind the fence claiborne and granbury were both killed next day and it is not known why granbury did not go on and take possession of the pike the brigades of lowry and govan had become so badly mixed up in the pursuit of bradley and in the recoil from the fire of the battery that their line had to be reformed when this was accomplished, the intrepid Claiborne was about to resume his attack towards Spring Hill when he was stopped by an order from Cheatham, who had brought up Brown's division on Claiborne's right, and had also sent a staff officer to recall Bate with an order for him to close up and connect with Claiborne's left. 
this proves that developments probably the fire of so many guns opening on claiborne had convinced cheatham that the force holding spring hill was strong enough to demand the attention of his entire corps his intention was for brown to lead an attack claiborne to follow brown and bate when he got up to follow claiborne but on getting into position brown reported to cheatham that he was outflanked several hundred yards on his right and that it would lead to inevitable disaster for him to attack the ninety seventh ohio of lane's brigade was to the left of the battery in front of spring hill with the left of the ninety seventh extending toward mount carmel road the one hundredth illinois was on the other side of the road several hundred yards in advance of the ninety seventh ohio and the two regiments were connected by a part of the fortieth indiana deployed as skirmishers that was the force that paralyzed the action of brown's veteran division cheatham then directed brown to refuse his right brigade to protect his flank and to attack with the rest of his division but brown still hesitating cheatham then concluded that the force holding spring hill was too strong for his corps alone to attack for he reported to hood that the line on his front was too long for him and that stuart's corps must first come up and form on his right but before stuart could get up night had come it is notable that brown's only excuse for not attacking was that he was outflanked on his right for the claim has been made that hood arrived in front of spring hill too late in the day to accomplish anything and schofield himself has stated that his action was based on a cool calculation made from his intimate knowledge of hood's character who had been deficient in mathematics as a cadet and can make no accurate computation of the time required to overcome difficulties that hood marching by a muddy country road would arrive in front of spring hill tired sleepy and so much later than he had calculated that he would defer all action until next morning between shortly after daylight when he started from the duck river and three o'clock when he crossed rutherford's creek hood had run it about ten miles too short a distance to tire him out and too early in the day to become sleepy he then sent forward cheatham's corps with plenty of time before night came for cheatham to have made a secure lodgment on the pike or to run over wagner's division the way it was strung out if claiborne's attack had been promptly followed up with anything like the vigor with which he had jumped on bradley's brigade hood's arrival in front of spring hill that afternoon was clearly a contingency unlooked for by schofield for it caught our army in a situation to leave no reasonable hope of escape without dire disaster and schofield himself as will appear was thoroughly frightened by the situation that hen's after version of the saving merit of his cool calculation was fully accepted by the administration is proved by the promotion he was given when in fact his bad miscalculation was responsible for getting the army into a trap from which it escaped through the failure of the enemy to shut the door of the miracle of that escape much remains to be told when wagner was coming to spring hill the twenty sixth ohio was detached from the column to guard the country road entering the pike more than a mile southwest of spring hill captain kelly of the twenty sixth informed me that the regiment was driven off that evening by a line of battle so long as to extend far beyond either flank of the twenty sixth that was bates division and after driving off the twenty sixth there was nothing whatever to prevent bate from sweeping down the pike toward columbia if he had diligently obeyed that order he would have progressed so far before cheatham's recall order reached him that he would have met ruger coming to spring hill and then the cat would have been out of the bag bate declined to obey cheatham's first order because it conflicted with the order direct from hood under which he was acting and cheatham's order had to be repeated when the second order reached bate he was still loitering where he had encountered the twenty sixth ohio he had wasted more than an hour of precious time in doing nothing 
for he had not only disobeyed Hood's order to sweep down the pike, but he had not even made a lodgment on the pike. It was then about six-thirty o'clock after dark, and Ruger's advance was just coming along. First leaving orders for the other divisions to follow after dark, about four-thirty o'clock, Schofield had started with Ruger to reinforce Stanley. Ruger skirmished with Bate at the place and time indicated, but as Bate was off to the east side instead of astride the pike, where by Hood's order he should have been, Ruger had no difficulty in pushing past Bate. Granberry's brigade was still lying behind the fence, close to the pike, and after passing Bate, Ruger had to run the gauntlet of Granberry's line. Granberry had been notified that Bate was coming from the left, and hearing Ruger marching along the pike in the darkness, he mistook him for Bate, so that Schofield himself, with Ruger, rode along right under the muzzles of the muskets of Granberry's line, in blissful ignorance of the danger they were passing. Captain English, Granberry's assistant adjunct general, advanced toward the pike in to investigate, but was captured by the flankers covering the march of Ruger's column, belonging to the 23rd Michigan. Elias Bartlett of the 36th Illinois was on picket on the pike at the bridge across the creek a half-mile south of Spring Hill, and he informed me that when Schofield came to his post he began eagerly to inquire what had happened, saying that he had feared everything at Spring Hill had been captured, that while they were talking a Confederate picket, near enough to hear the sound of their voices, fired on them, and Schofield had then rode on. A little later Bate came up through the fields. Granberry fell back from the fence, and Claiborne and Bate then connected and adjusted a new line with Bate's left brigade, refused so as to face the pike, and all the rest of their line running across the country away from the pike. Bate had utterly failed to grasp the significance of Ruger's passage, claiming that his flank was in danger, and his representations to that effect were so urgent that Johnson's division was brought up between nine and ten o'clock and posted on Bate's left. Johnson's line and the line of Bates' refused brigade paralleling the pike at a distance of not more than 150 yards. Many contradictory statements had been made relative to the distance of that part of the Confederate line from the pike. The owner of the land pointed out to me a small plantation graveyard as being just inside their line that night. He said that the position of the line was marked after they had gone in the morning by the rail barricades they had built and by the remains of their bivouac fires and he very positively asserted that no part of their line facing the pike was distant more than a hundred and fifty yards from the pike. All the intervening space was cleared land. When the divisions of Cox, Wood, and Kimball came up from the Duck River later in the night, they marched along unmolested within easy range of the Confederate line, and could plainly see the men around bivouac fires. A staff officer was stationed on the pike beyond Johnson's left, where the fires first came into view to caution the troops as they came up to march the, by the fires as silently as possible. Captain Bestow, of General Wood's staff, has related that when the officer told Wood, riding at the head of his division, that the long line of fires he could see paralleling the pike so closely on the right was the bivouac fires of the enemy, the veteran Wood was so astounded that he exclaimed, In God's name, no! When they came abreast of the fires, one of Wood's orderlies, believing it to be impossible they could be the enemy, started to ride over to one of the fires to light his pipe, but had gone only a short distance when he was fired on and came galloping back. A colonel of Johnson's division has stated that he held his regiment in line momentarily, expecting an order to open fire until his men, one after another, overcome with fatigue, had all dropped to the ground to go to sleep. Some of Johnson's men, on their own responsibility, 
went out on the pike between the passage of the different divisions to capture stragglers for the sake of getting the contents of their haversacks. They were the men who made it unsafe, as reported by General Stanley, for the staff officer or an orderly to ride along the pike when a column of troops was not passing. General Hood had gone to bed in Thompson's house. When he was informed that troops were marching along the pike without getting out of bed, he directed Colonel Mason, his chief of staff, to send an order to Cheatham to advance on the pike and attack. But Mason admitted the next day, as stated by Governor Harris of Tennessee, who was serving as a volunteer aide on Hood's staff, that he never sent the order. This strange neglect on the part of his own chief of staff affords a fitting climax to the rest of the imbecility that contributed to Hood's failure after he had personally led the main body of his army to a position where by all ordinary chances success should have been certain. There is a bit of Stanley's report that gives a clear glimpse of the situation as Schofield and Stanley believed it to be after they had met that night. General Schofield arrived at, from Columbia at seven o'clock in the evening with Ruger's division. He found the enemy on the pike and had quite a skirmish in driving them off. My pickets had reported seeing rebel columns passing east of our position as if to get possession of the hills at Thompson Station, and the anxious question arose whether we would force our way through to Franklin. It was determined to attempt this, and General Schofield pushed on with Ruger's division to ascertain the condition of affairs. Another vivid glimpse is afforded in the statement of O.J. Hack, a conductor on the railroad who was also interested in the store at Columbia. He came down the road that day on the last train southbound, having in charge some goods for the store, and at the Spring Hill station met the last train northbound, and from the trainmen learned that the army was retreating. The two trains stood at the station that afternoon. Sometime after dark, being anxious to save his goods, Hack went over to Spring Hill in quest of a guard to run the trains back to Franklin. On inquiring for headquarters, he was directed to a large brick house where he found Schofield and Stanley together. Schofield, recently arrived from Duck River, had just been getting Stanley's account of the situation, and Hack said that Schofield was in a condition of great agitation, walking the floor and wringing his hands. When Hack was told what he wanted, Schofield sharply replied that the enemy had possession of the road north of Spring Hill, and the trains could not move. The report of Stanley and the statement of Hack concur in showing that it was then Schofield's belief that Hood had possession of the Franklin Pike, that the army was caught in a trap, that the only way out was the desperate expedient of forcing a passage by a night attack, and failing in that, he must fight a battle next day under so many disadvantages that ruinous defeat, with the probable loss of the army, was staring him in the face. It would be interesting to know what Schofield then thought of his intimate knowledge of Hood's character, and his cool calculation based thereon, for which he afterwards so unblushingly claimed so much credit. The two trains stood at the station until daylight was beginning to dawn when the detail of men came and began to build fires to burn the cars, but the detail was driven away, and the fires were extinguished before much damage was done by the advance of the enemy. The two trains thus captured afforded the transportation to which Hood alluded in a letter to Richmond, written when he was in front of Nashville, wherein he stated that he had captured enough transportation to make use of the railroad in bringing up supplies. But Schofield ignored the loss of the two trains, for in his official report he explicitly states that, with the exception of a few wagons and a few cattle that were stampeded, he arrived at Franklin without any loss. When Schofield 
pushed on with Ruger's division to ascertain the condition of affairs. On his arrival at Thompson Station, three miles north of Spring Hill, he found campfires still burning, but brigade of cavalry that had been in possession there withdrew without making any resistance. This very considerate action on the part of the cavalry was another of those lucky fatalities that so notably contributed to the escape of our army when such special fatalities were a vital necessity for its escape. After posting Ruger there to hold the crossroads, Schofield returned to Spring Hill, where he arrived about midnight at the same time with the advance of Cox's division coming from Duck River. With this division, he then hurried through to Franklin, picking up Ruger as he passed along, and thus saddling Stanley with all the risk of saving their artillery and the trains. If they had been lost, Stanley would have been the escape goat. But with the same skill with which that afternoon he had bluffed off ten-twelfths of Hood's army with a single division, Stanley that night saved the artillery and the trains. At three o'clock in the morning, when only a part of the trains had pulled out, the long column on the pike was brought to a standstill by the attack some place in front. The situation was so critical that General Wood, who was then with Stanley, believing it would be impossible to save both troops and trains, advised that the trains be abandoned. But Stanley persevered until the attack was beaten off and the column again in motion. The two trains of cars had to be abandoned because the bridge had been destroyed north of the station and about forty wagons were lost in the attack made by Forrest between Thompson Station and Franklin. Everything else was saved. And by the way, Stanley was one of the many good soldiers who were overslaught by the big promotion obtained by Schofield. Stanley outranked Schofield, both as a captain in the regular army and as a major general of volunteers, but by assignment of the president, gained by his extraordinary ability in the arts of diplomacy instead of by fighting ability displayed on the battlefield schofield was a department commander while stanley was a corps commander and it thus happened that stanley was serving under his junior in rank wagner's division was the last to leave spring hill when night came bradley's brigade began to entrench the lines it was on and kept at this work until nearly midnight when the men were called under arms and spent all the remainder of that anxious, weary night on their feet. While standing in column, we could hear to our left the rumble of the wheels while the artillery and the wagons were pulling out, and much of the time could be heard the dull tread of many feet and the clicking of accoutrements that told the march of a column of troops along the pike. But there was no other sound, not even the shout of a teamster to his meals or the crack of the whip. All the surroundings were so impressive as to subdue the most boisterous, profane men. In expressing their dissatisfaction with the situation, they were always careful to mutter their curses in a tone so low as to be inaudible a short distance away, for looking to our right we could see the glow on the sky made by the bivouac fires of the enemy, and in some places could see the fires with a few men about them cooking something to eat or otherwise engaged, while most of their men were lying on the ground asleep. Every minute of those anxious hours, we were looking for them to awake to the opportunity that was slipping through their fingers and grab hold of it by advancing and opening fire on the congested mass of troops and trains that choked the pike. Occasionally, our column would move on a short distance. Any orders that may have been given were spoken in a low tone at the head of the column. You would be apprised that the column was moving by the silent disappearance of, into darkness 
of your file leader. You would hurry after him, and taking perhaps not more than a dozen steps would be brought to a sudden halt by running against him, immediately followed by the man in your rear bumping up against yourself. Then would follow an indefinite wait until the column would move again on a short distance. The wearing suspense of the long waiting while standing on our feet, the exasperating halts following those false starts, when everybody was almost frantic with impatience to go on, the excessive physical fatigue combined with the intense mental strain when already haggard from so much loss of sleep during the three days and nights preceding, make that night memorable as by far the most trying in nearly four years of soldiering. It afforded unspeakable relief when just as daylight was beginning to dawn, our column finally got away in rapid motion for Franklin, the enemy dogging our heels with their close pursuit. The location of Hood's headquarters was central as to the position of his troops until nightfall, and was therefore a proper one. But he was too far away to get any personal knowledge as to what was going on at Spring Hill, and he had to rely on the reports of his subordinates, who were in contact with our troops. The character of those reports is unmistakably indicated by the second move that Hood made. His first move, as has been shown, was based on the correct theory that part of Schofield's army was at Spring Hill and part at Duck River, and it contemplated thrusting in Cheatham's corps between those two parts. His second move, made after the fighting was all over and he had received the reports of that fighting, was based on the theory that all of Schofield's army had reached Spring Hill for abandoning all purpose of cutting off any part of the south of Spring Hill. It contemplated seizing the pike north of Spring Hill and cutting off Schofield's retreat to Franklin. Between sunset and dark, as stated by General Stewart, which would be about five o'clock that, at that season of the year, he received orders to cross Rutherford's Creek with his corps to pass to the right of Cheatham's corps and to extend to his right across the Franklin Pike. After about five hours, Stuart finally went into bivouac with his right more than a mile away from the Franklin Pike. His explanation for his failure was the lack of a competent guide, the darkness of the night, and the fatigue of his men. To accomplish Hood's orders required a march of a little less than four miles by Stuart's head of column, about three miles by a direct county road leading to Mount Carmel Road, and the remaining distance across the country between Mount Carmel Road and the Franklin Pike. It would seem that a guide might have been found among the cavalry who had explored the country that afternoon in developing the position of our line between Mount Carmel Road and the railway station west of the Franklin Pike, or there were men in some of the Tennessee regiments whose homes were in that vicinity who were thoroughly familiar with the ground. That no great difficulties were involved in the march is proved by the fact that Johnson's division made a similar march in about two hours later in the night to get into position on Bates' left. The night was as dark, the men were as tired, the distance was as great, and the way was as difficult for Johnson as it was for Stuart. In view of these plain facts, it is a fair inference that Stuart made a very lukewarm effort to accomplish Hood's orders, that it was possible for him, by a display of no more energy than Johnson displayed, to have extended his right across the Franklin Pike as early as eight o'clock, and then when Schofield started north with Ruger's division about nine o'clock, he would have found his way effectively barred. The prime cause of Hood's failure was apparently the lack of confidence in his generalship on the part of so many of his subordinates. They had been dissatisfied with his appointment to the command of the army, 
and their dissatisfaction had been greatly increased by the failure of his attacks on Sherman's lines in front of Atlanta. With the poor opinion they held of Hood's ability, it was not possible for them to give to any plan of his that whole-hearted, unquestioning support that gives the best guarantee of success. Simple as his plan was, they all failed to grasp the importance of getting possession of the pike, and Claiborne accepted they all acted as if they were expecting a repetition of the disastrous experience that had followed the attacks on Sherman. The promptness with which Claiborne turned and rolled up Bradley's brigade when he was so unexpectedly assailed on his own flank was the only energetic action on the part of any of them after they crossed Rutherford's Creek, and no doubt if Claiborne had not been halted by Cheatham's order, he would have gone on until he had reaped the full measure of success made so easily possible by the faulty situation of our army. But amid all the exciting occurrences of that eventful evening, it is amazing that no inkling of that faulty situation seems ever to have entered the minds of any one of those veteran generals. Hood made a mistake, as stated by himself, by not taking B's corps on the flank march instead of Cheatham's corps. He believed that with B in Cheatham's place he would have succeeded, and in view of the skill with which Lee executed the part assigned to him to hold Schofield at Duck River, it is more than probable he would have given at Spring Hill far better support than Cheatham gave. Hood led Cheatham within sight of an easy and brilliant success, and it was hesitation displayed by Cheatham, Brown, and Bate at the critical time that defeated Hood's plan and saved Schofield's army. That their hesitation was not due to any lack of courage on their part, or on the part of the troops they commanded, was abundantly proved by the unsurpassed courage with which they assaulted Franklin next day, when it was everlastingly too late. If they had fairly utilized at Spring Hill one-tenth part of the courage that was thrown away on the breastworks of Franklin, they would have changed the later current of the war with results too far-reaching to be estimated. The prime purpose of Schofield's campaign was to delay Hood. How well he succeeded in that purpose can be significantly stated in a single sentence. The evening of November 29th he was at Duck River, and the morning of December 1st he was at Nashville, more than 40 miles away. Then followed the panicky feeling displayed by the administration, and by General Grant, because General Thomas was not ready to attack Hood immediately on his appearance in front of Nashville. If Schofield's orders at Duck River had been to make no effort to delay Hood but to get inside the fortifications of Nashville with the least possible delay, he would not have covered the distance in so short a time without the spur of Hood's flank movement, and the celerity with which he ran out of the country was due to the scare he got at Spring Hill. From Franklin next day he wired General Thomas at Nashville that he had come through, but that the least mistake on his part or the fault of any subordinate might have proved fatal, and he did not want to get into such a tight place again that a worse position for an inferior force than the one at Franklin could hardly be found, that he had no doubt Forrest would be in his rear next day, or doing some worse mischief, that he ought to fall back to Brentwood at once. In short, his Franklin dispatches, read by the light of Stanley's report in a pack statement, clearly showed that his mind was still dominated by the fright of Spring Hill, and that he could feel no security short of Brentwood, where he would be backed up too close to Nashville for Hood to have room to repeat the terrible flank movement. Not even the wrecking of Hood's army on the breastworks of Franklin that evening could reassure Schofield. He insisted on retreating to Nashville that night, when thousands of the men 
were in such a condition from more than forty hours of incessant marching fortifying and fighting that they dozed on their feet while they were walking and in spite of the manly protest of general cox who was so urgent in his efforts to persuade schofield no more running was necessary that he offered to pledge his head he could hold the position end of section twelve of american civil war collection volume one the battle of spring hill tennessee read after the stated meeting held february second nineteen o seven by john k schellenberger this recording by suzanne huron of kingsport tennessee this is a librivox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.